Welcome in, rhetorical listeners, to another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. Hope you're doing well. Today, we're talking to Dr. Ryan Scannell, Assistant Professor at San Jose State University. He's also the Assistant WPA there, and he's got a book out, Faking the News, What Rhetoric Can Teach Us About Donald J. Trump. So we're going to be talking about that and all things Trump today with Ryan. I have to admit, when Ryan first reached out to me, he said, and I will paraphrase from his email, I don't know if I'm emerging or not. I don't know if I'm emerging or not. So I looked up Ryan's CV and did a little research and decided maybe he's not emerging. Maybe he's not right for the Emerging Scholar series, but he's definitely right to come on the podcast and talk about his new book, Faking the News, What Rhetoric Can Teach Us About Donald J. Trump. This conversation was fantastic, and I don't think it's possible to believe, no, agree with everything someone says about Trump. There, It's almost impossible for two people to have the exact same feelings about 45. Now, I say that with a clear understanding of what hate is. Ryan has some really interesting things to say about the way that we talk about Trump and the moment for rhetoricians, the moment that we're in, this chirotic moment with 45, and what Rhetoric as a discipline can bring to the assessment of what is happening in our country and what has been happening in our country. Like I said, I don't know if I agree with everything Ryan said. It's impossible to agree with everything someone said about Trump. But the conversation was extremely intriguing and he was a more than generous guest. So we really do thank Dr. Scannell for joining us. This conversation happened on a weird morning. You know, I'm here in central Illinois, Bloomington Normal, at Illinois State University. And Ryan's out on the West Coast, in San Jose. So there's a bit of a time difference. All right, he was willing to get up and go early in the morning at 8 a.m. It was 10 a.m. my time. And we really did have a fascinating conversation that captured this critical moment. That we're in with 45. I really can't stress that enough. What was also extremely interesting about this conversation with Ryan was that it happened early in the morning on the day that the Koch brother died. Not Charles, but David. And so I actually broke the news to Ryan that uh, that Koch brother had passed away. And he was taken aback a bit. And we worked it into our conversation, but... It wasn't really something that was about Trump, but I did want to share one thing that Ryan said that stuck with me when I told him David Koch had passed away. He said that he doesn't celebrate deaths, and it was quite beautiful and poignant, and it was the rain pouring in the background, you know, in my home office, and and the garden, you know, overcast garden behind Ryan and, and, and when we were chatting via Skype and I don't know what it was. It was super, super poignant and it made me really reflect on how we talk about and people who are on the other side of the aisle from us. And, and me, I need to think about that and the way that I do that sometimes because being a 
stone cold liberal growing up in central Alabama is pretty tough and not everyone I know and talk to has the same feelings about things and sometimes it can be quite vitriolic so I appreciated Ryan in that moment I think that's probably enough introduction I bet you want to get right to it so Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Ryan Skinner. Southern California um, did my undergraduate degree at UC Santa Barbara, then went okay. to Cal State Northridge for my master's degree, which is also in Southern California, then out to Arizona for my uh, Arizona State for my PhD. And you graduated with your BA in 2001, and then that's in Santa Barbara, and then your MA in 2007. Yes. So there was a little bit of a gap there. What did you do to fill that time? I was a banker. Uh, I graduated. Yeah, I graduated from my undergraduate degree. I was not a good undergraduate. Well, that's not true. I was a very good undergraduate. I was not a good student. Um, so I graduated with sort of not a very good sense of what I wanted to do when I grew up. And one of my roommates and best friends at the time worked at a bank and got me a job at a bank. Uh, and I actually, so I worked at that bank in Santa Barbara for a while. And then I moved to Florida for a year and transferred to a different branch there and then moved back to San Francisco and transferred to a new branch there. Um, mm. And I hated them all. Um, the people were fine. It was, I just really hated the job. I hated waking up in the morning. Um, so that's why I decided to go back to graduate school. And it was a, as an MA student that I sort of found rhetoric and composition. Um, How did you find it? Uh, I started teaching. I got into the TA program, and I was taking two classes at the, at once. The first one was the um, pedagogy class, and the other one was a Vietnam Lit class. And I was so excited about the Vietnam Lit class when I started it. Um, and it was a great class, and the, the professor was on my MA committee. But at the end of those two classes, I had no sense of where I would take the stuff that I had done in a Vietnam lit class, it didn't seem like it carried beyond that one class. Whereas the pedagogy class felt like it made sense of an awful lot of things beyond itself. And so that's how I sort of ended up going down the road of retcomp. And you moved from Cal State Northridge to pursue your PhD at Arizona State University. I think that you have a fascinating dissertation title, so I want to share that, and then perhaps you could talk a little bit about that project. Sure. Your dissertation was titled, Writing Programs and Administration at ASU, The First Hundred Years. Could you talk a little bit about that localized project? It seems fascinating. Yeah, I, um, my first semester, well, I guess my first year at ASU, um, I was sort of casting about, as you do in your first year as a PhD student. But that spring, I went to Four Cs, and there were – so Arizona State has, at this point, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 students. There are multiple campuses around the valley. Um, I think there are four, but there may be a fifth one. 
And the people who work there in rhetoric and composition are spread out across those various campuses. And it wasn't until we got to four C's that I sort of got a real sense of how many people who had been formative in the field were working at the institution where I was, and I didn't really even know it. So, for example, Akua Duku Anoche works at the West Campus. She had been the chair of four C's a couple years prior. Dwayne Rowan and Barry Maid worked at the Polytechnic Campus, which is the East Campus. Dwayne, I knew, was there because he had met with me previously and, and had been really instrumental in mentoring me, but I didn't know Barry Maid was there. And there, in fact, had been lots of people. Dave Schwalm and Barry Maid started the WPA Listserv. And so the more I sort of learned about all the different people who were there, the more I thought that it was important to sort of look at the, the influence that the university had had on the field. And so I started from that. I started thinking about the local history of that, and it just pushed. It was going to be a history anyway, but it was going to be a much more recent history. But it just sort of kept pushing back and back and back. You know, Frank D'Angelo had been there. And how did Frank D'Angelo get there? Well, he had been hired by a guy who had been there in the 60s. Um, who had run a Four Seas NCTE conference in 1965 or whatever, you know, it just goes back and back and back. Right. Fascinating project. I'd like to learn more about that, actually. Uh, maybe we can talk later about it. When you, when you left Arizona State, you moved to the University of North Texas, and you spent about four years there. Uh, my apologies, but I don't know which city that's in. Denton, Denton, Texas. It's about 40 miles okay. north of Dallas. And how is living in Denton? Uh, Denton's great in a lot of ways. The University of North Texas has, depending on who you talk to, either the best or the second best jazz program in the nation. Mm. Um, and it's two miles as the crow flies from Texas Women's University. So it's a relatively small town. I mean, I think including students, it's about 100,000 people. But they've got two universities around the square in the center of the town. There's constantly people busking. There's uh, good food because it's located close to Dallas and there are immigrant mm -hmm. communities. So it was great in a lot of ways. And when you left North Texas, it was a bit of a homecoming for you as you moved back to California and took – um, a full-time tenure track appointment. Well, you left a full-time tenure track appointment at North Texas for an, another one in the rhetoric and composition, as an assistant professor of rhetoric and composition in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at San Jose State University. And you moved there in 2015, but you're also the assistant writing program administrator there at San Jose State. So you have a dual appointment. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that experience, uh, what you're working on, at, at, at what you've been working on since you moved to San Jose State? Yeah. Um, so part of the reason I came to San Jose State was because uh, I felt like it gave me some opportunities to do work. I, I, I've been involved in writing program administration on and off uh, since I was a graduate student. So I liked the idea of becoming, of moving into some administrative responsibilities, but it wasn't taking it all on my shoulders. I didn't have to be the WPA. I could sort of do some some more localized things. And so I've become the assessment coordinator, for better or worse. And I have 
I am the TA coordinator, so I hire and train TAs. I get to work really closely with them. Um, but that's then something I, you enjoy doing. That's I, at this point, I think it's one of my favorite parts of my job. Um, how um, many TAs are you managing? Right now, there's 14 of them. Wow. Six returning, uh, eight of them are brand new. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I interview them, I train them, I observe them. We do. Um, professional development throughout the course of the year so it's really it's intensive in a lot of ways but it's also really rewarding in a lot of ways uh, and my first class has now graduated and gone out into the world and they're starting to get their own jobs other places and so it's pretty awesome that's pretty interesting i'll, I'll admit i haven't had anyone i've talked to on the podcast talk about that experience actually of seeing their first class graduate um, since that's recent for you, do you mind elaborating a little bit about that experience? Sure. It's, it's, it's really recent. In fact, I just learned this week that the first one, so last year, uh, the, the first group that I brought in and trained and sent out graduated. I worked with some students before that, but they had been hired with other people or whatever. So this was my first, like, this one was all me. And I just learned that one of them got a job at a local community college. I haven't actually talked to her yet. I heard it through the grapevine that she got the job. Um, so I am really excited to find out how it's going with her. And then I got a request from another person who is interviewing at the same university or the same community college later this week. Well, I guess it must be next week. Um, and she's very excited about the possibility that she will be working there as well. So... You know, I'm sort of like proud papa-ing at this point. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I think you should be. That reflects well on you and, and well on the program there at San Jose State. Yeah, I'm really excited for them, and they seem really happy about it. So um, that's that's what matters, I guess. Yeah, well, I feel like we've gotten through the preliminary stuff where we've gotten to know Ryan Scannell, right? (laughs) Uh, uh, A 12-minute speed date, I guess, if you will. Um, But uh, I want to talk more about your publications. And you have a bevy of publications, and we can talk about certain ones, uh, whether those are scholarly monographs, collections you've been a part of, uh, even trade trade or general audience books. Um, so I wonder, is there a place that you want to start or should we just dive in? Let's just dive in. Okay. Well, I hate to be that guy in academia. You're going to recognize him when I say this, Ryan. What have you done for me lately? (laughs) So perhaps we should start with some of your more recent work. Absolutely. Uh, The most recent thing that I published was a special issue of Rhetoric Society Quarterly. Okay. Um, called Rhetoric's Demagogue, Demagoguery's Rhetoric. Um, I and when propos- was that? It was published in June. Okay. Yeah, June. Okay. Um, so I, that is available now to check out. It is. And the introduction is openly available to everybody. Uh, the articles in the edited collection or in the issue are you have to be a subscriber or you have to have access through your institution. I um, love our little open access portals when we can get them, right? Isn't it great? Yeah. yeah. I was hornswoggled I, into that one, to be honest. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was at a conference with Trish Roberts Miller, 
and Jen Marchia down at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. You know, Trish Roberts Miller writes a lot about demagoguery, and she thought it would be a really interesting idea to propose a special issue. And Jen Marchia was in the middle of writing a book called Donald Trump Demagogue for President, and Trish had just published a book called Demagoguery and Democracy, and they were both mm-hmm. like, yeah, this will be great. And I was like, ooh, that would be a lot of fun. And then they both said, well, I don't really have time to edit it. I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll do it. So I got hornswoggled into it. But it was great. It was a really, really, really fun project. For listeners who want to check that out, it's Rhetoric's Demagogue, Demagoguery's Rhetoric. And that was Rhetoric Society Quarterly 49.3. And that was uh, this summer. Uh, You mentioned Trump. And I know that you... Uh, written extensively on political rhetoric and that's not only writing that you're doing for a scholarly audience but also a general audience as well so perhaps we could talk a bit about um, a book that you published in 2018 called faking the news what rhetoric can teach us about donald j trump I want to I, I want to say something like the title, you know, really tells us what it, the book's going to be about. But what did what are we going to learn from the book? Right. So if I had to rename it, I would rename it just Trump's rhetoric. Oh yeah. Um, I think the pro. I, I really love the title of the book, but it is a very academic title. Uh-huh. Um, but what what the the book is about? It's all rhetoricians writing about Trump. And the sort of gambit is rhetoricians for 150 years have been doing the work that we do in institutions, predominantly higher education. um, But we've never been more useful to the world than we are right now. This is our moment. Right. People need what we have or whether they need it or not. They could at least benefit and use the, the knowledge that we've built. So that book, each chapter is a sort of um, an attempt to use rhetorical knowledge that we've developed over lots of years in order to make sense of the election of Donald Trump. So each, I mean, there's a chapter by Josh Gunn about um, psychoanalysis, like how to to think about him, Trump as a neurotic, I think. Mm. No, it's not this, a neurotic. It's something else. But um, so each chapter does some something with like the the rhetorical scholarship of Trump. That connection between Trump and neuroses is truly fascinating. I was listening to another podcast, not in the field, and one of the uh, people, the guests on that podcast, were likening Trump to an insult comic. Mm-hmm. And 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 likening his tweets to to the comic stage, and um, and that neurosis is is kind of I think what might drive that. Mm-hmm. Well, God actually calls him a pervert. I just looked. He calls him a pervert, uh-huh. uh, and so he uses Lacanian psychoanalysis um, and rhetorical theory to talk about perversion as the way as sort of his signature appeal is. He will not be uh, reined in. He refuses to sort of bow down to any of the the norms and and habits of our institutions, and that's what part of what makes him so appealing. Right. Sure. 
yeah yeah that that uh getting into that like reptilian side of our brain and capitalizing exactly. on our fears right absolutely absolutely let's go back a little bit if you don't mind so the the purpose with this book faking the news what what was your purpose in writing this book what did you want to do um the purpose of it was sort of as i just said really to to bridge the gap between highly academic publications which i value and think are really important i don't want to be heard to be saying that i think those are not important because sure. i do but also i think that rhetoricians are are in a good place a chirotic moment to be able to speak to people beyond ourselves right so in addition to speaking with ourselves I think we are in a moment where we can and should be speaking with people beyond ourselves. And a lot of the the knowledge that we have about persuasion and appeals and and those sorts of, of things really make a lot of sense of the world in a lot of ways that sort of traditional political science or economic analyses fall a little short like we're the gap we're the ones that can fill that gap uh, and that for me that becomes a bit of an ethical requirement so that's interesting that you think of it as an ethical requirement because as you were as you were talking what i was thinking about was responsibility the responsibility mm -hmm. of rhetoricians and certainly rhetoricians working in the field and in the discipline they're not all going to be liberal and they're not you know they're we're, mm -hmm. they're not all going to be conservative we're going to have a variety of opinions sure and and so when we think about the responsibility certainly you're going to have some instructors who harness that responsibility mm -hmm. and you have other instructors who are resistant to to take on that responsibility what have been your experiences in in, in that and maybe how do you approach that with your graduate students yeah, so, and I'll say it's similar to what the book is doing. I am of the opinion, I mean, I, I think rhetoric done well helps us argue better. Right. That's what it does. So whether you're conservative or liberal or pro-Trump or anti-Trump or whatever, the the things that rhetoric teaches us is how to be better arguers, so that we can we can sort of bring all those differences to bear, but in ways that that can make it a productive conversation. Um, and that's how the book is is structured, right? Although it is about Trump, it is not about how Trump is the worst thing to ever happen. It's about how Trump does what he does. And he's incredibly successful at what he does, as evidenced by the fact that he's president of the United States. So the goal is not to say, well, Trump sucked. I might in my own personal life say Trump sucks and I broadcast it in lots of different places but in the book the book is not about telling you how bad Trump is it's about telling you uh, how Trump works and so that's how to that's what I think of as our responsibility as rhetoricians is not to say Trump is bad Trump is good whatever but to be able to sort of bring to bear our knowledge about argument and deliberation and persuasion in the world in order to help people including ourselves, do it better. You, you smartly, I, I think smartly identify this chirotic moment for rhetoricians, like this as our time to use our skill set and our knowledge to make change and meaning, right? Um, and sense. 
So I wonder then, how did the, how did you decide to make this a book? Was it were you sitting there on in November 16 and you were like, I got to write a book now, or how did it become to be the <laughs> so form nice. that it's in? And you know, a tangential question that you might also think about when you're answering this one is, what does the book do to bridge that gap between the everyman and the academic audience? So I'm going to give you. I fancy myself a rhetorical historian, so I'm going to give you a slightly elaborated answer to this, which is that when I left North Texas and came to San Jose State, one of the things that allowed me to do was to think about different ways I wanted to be involved in scholarship, because the expectations at San Jose State are very different than they were at the University of North Texas. And I came here having written a book already and having um, plenty to get tenure when I arrived. So the first thing I wrote when I got to San Jose State was a short essay that was published in the Washington Monthly that took essentially what I argued was that Donald Trump kept promising to be a destructive force. And that was part of the appeal, right? That a lot of the the sort of people who were looking at the way that he made arguments thought that that would drive people away, right? That his promises of destruction would scare people off. And in fact, I argued that that's part of why people liked him, is that he was promising um, really apocalyptic sort of actions if he got elected. So that essay got published in 2015, March 2015, I think it was. And pretty soon thereafter, it was time to propose four C's proposals. And Colin Brook, who's at Syracuse, decided that it would be interesting. This was before we had any idea that Trump would be the candidate, right? Mm. This was, he was just sort of like a a weirdo out on the fringes promising to ban Muslims and build walls. But a lot of retweets and nobody was noticing it. Absolutely. And Colin was sort of like, well, even if nothing comes of this, this is a really interesting thing for rhetoricians to talk about. So in April or May of 2015, we proposed the Four Cs panel for the following year. I'm sorry, that must have been early 2016 mm-hmm. when we proposed it. In any case, the following Four Cs, he had been elected, and we were the only Trump panel at the Four Cs because we were the only ones who had proposed it. Sort of, everybody thought he was flashing the pan. And so nobody else proposed a Trump panel, and we did. And lucky us, I guess. So we did. I don't think it's luck, Ryan. (laughs) I think that I I don't want to call it predictive, but I I think that perhaps it was um, a chance, you know, that you took that not necessarily luck was involved on your side. Well, I it it all belong all the credit belongs to Colin in in seeing what could possibly be. I have told people repeatedly that Donald Trump has been the greatest thing for my career and the worst thing for my life as a citizen. And I would gladly trade the directions my career has gone for a much healthier citizenship. I think we need to pause and talk about that statement. Uh, how do you compartmentalize that? That has got to be tremendous, uh, tremendous uh, mental and emotional labor. It is tremendous and mental and emotional labor. I don't compartmentalize it so much as I am persuaded and have been persuaded for a long time that women, people of color, queer and trans and gay and lesbian scholars do a tremendous amount of emotional labor being in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Just going to work and getting jobs and trying to write uh, scholarship and the things that they do. 
and by virtue of my set of identity constellation, I'm not required to do that kind of work mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. And this is now a point where I need to be the one who's doing that kind of work, right? Doing the sort of emotional labor of um, of confronting the world that we live in. Donald Trump is mine, right? Donald Trump is my responsibility as much as anybody else's. And to sort of pass that by seemed like probably not the greatest decision. Right. Uh, Donald so I, Trump is my responsibility as much as the next person. What a fascinating statement. Uh, well, I mean, you and I are video chatting, so you can see. But for those of us, for the people who may be listening and not seeing, I'm white, straight, male, mm-hmm. middle class. I hit the lotto on this stuff. But I study Nazis and fascists and demagogues and Donald Trump and those people are that that is the trajectory that I come out of. Right. I those people are in my history. I have family that has been that, that fought for the South during the Civil War. I have not family, but but family friends who were sympathetic to Nazis. I, I grew up in an area that was, it's called Sundown Town. So if you were a person of color, you were not supposed to be there after sundown or you could face repercussions, right? That's my legacy. My, that's my history. And I need to not pretend that it's not. So that's my thinking on it. I don't think I'm having some revelatory moment like personally, but but you are impacting me a great deal, specifically when you start started talking about it being your responsibility as you come out of your trajectory, you know, and I think I need to think more about that as, as a cis cishet white male who grew up in rural Alabama, you know, mm-hmm. um, absolutely. You mentioned I know that you write extensively about Trump. But you also do focus uh, on rhetoric of other demagogues and, and Nazis and fascists. What, mm-hmm. where, uh, where else has your work taken you as, as that study and exploration has expanded? Well, right now it's sort of the Nazis and the fascist stuff is really at the beginning point. I think the way I was tracking it out the other day for somebody else is that Trump, for all that Trump is, Trump is really sort of voicing countercultural arguments. But for the most part, they are not what we would call, except in, in sort of specific moments. He's very much aligned with, with a whole series of values that are pretty traditional, you know, small government, lower taxes. Occasionally he goes into something that's really sort of extreme, um, you know, like Jews are not loyal if they vote for Democrats and we should build a wall and ban Muslims and all sorts of stuff. But part of the reason that he's appealing is because he's he's relatively mainstream that one of the chapters in in the faking the news book by jen wingard is about how trump's policies are perfectly in line with gop policies over the last 40 years Uh, there he's just making them happen in a way that the gop has not been able to but he's perfectly in line so I sort of was thinking about those as like countercultural, but nevertheless within the, the sort of general mainstream. And the sort of the you move towards fascists and fascists have been largely discredited, although there's a lot of fascists still around, largely discredited 
but it's a step down the line away from just countercultural to discredited. And then when you go to the Nazis, those are like openly heinous and horrendous things. So it's really starting at Trump in some ways takes you to Nazis if you just keep following it out, which is not to say Trump is a Nazi. It's that it's that sort of the relationship of rhetoric to what I think of as norms and and um, civility and all that sort of stuff. He starts you on a path to, to that stuff. Sure. One of the things I've noticed talking to you, Ryan, is that your, your, the projects like your dissertation project and your uh, your book about Trump and the way that you talk about Trump going all the way back through fascists. And I don't mean to make this connection humorously, but it seems it's something similar that you did in your dissertation project. You looked at the writing center and you went back. So what I'm making this connection to say is that it sounds like you have a genuine, earnest interest in the historical and the socio-historical aspects of rhetoric. Yes, very much so. I'm interested. Uh, this is how I teach writing. It's how I teach rhetoric. It's how I teach everything, which is I think what rhetoricians can do and should do is help people be in the world. Right. And so how do you be in the world ethically and effectively and intentionally in as much as that's possible? And so for me, the historical, the socio-historical uh, is how you make sense of whatever now is in relation to a whole series of arguments and, and transitions and developments that have come before it. Whatever our particular institutions are now, they didn't just pop up out of nowhere. So right. I know that, that not everybody is as interested in that stuff as I am, so that's part of my burden to bear is to make that stuff interesting for other people, but that's what I'm interested in. One of the things that I think you've talked about a couple of times while during our conversation and I, you haven't talked around it intentionally, but I would like to, to ask a, a pointed question. You mentioned that with faking the news, your purpose was to bridge the gap between the academic and the everyman audience. Mm -hmm. Why is that it's so important to you? Um, well, I think there's two reasons. One of them is that I think what we have that what we do and what we know is valuable to people who are beyond us. It's, um, that, it's our time idea, right? Right, right. But the other one is that I'm going to say that it's it's sort of selfish, which is I've done a lot of writing. I do a lot of writing. And part of what I look for when I do writing is to try to do something that I haven't done before, to try and learn how to how to speak to different audiences or I've written journal articles. So how can I write uh, book chapters, you know, whatever it is. And it seemed to me, given the first part that it's our time, it seemed to me that a very reasonable thing for us to be able to do is to sort of learn how to talk to new, new kinds of people. So part of it is for the people we're talking to, but really a lot of it is for sort of, I mean, me and us more generally to think about how to do what we do in d different ways for different people. I, too, thought that Donald Trump was a flash-in-the-pan candidate. I w I, again, I wasn't predictive either, but I did have this weird feeling, and it might have been the central Alabama echo chamber in which I was living at that time, but there was this uneasiness that crept up you know, around August or so. But I wonder, 
now that we know that Donald Trump, you know, four years later, three years later, isn't a flash in the pan candidate, he's president of the United States. That means that scholarship concerning Donald Trump is not flash in the pan scholarship, right? <laughs> and so it's not fair of me to ask you, Ryan, to predict the future, right, concerning Trump scholarship. But I do think that you have some valuable insights that you might be able to share for graduate students who want to focus on Trump going forward. What are some things that they might find useful in their exploration? Well, I will say I agree. Donald Trump is not a flash in the pan. I did not. I, I also thought Donald Trump was a flash in the pan when I was first writing about him. But if you look at the other candidates that he was up against, Ted Cruz and Rick Perry and um, Ben Carson, right? there was a whole series of candidates that Donald Trump may have been way out on the fringe, but he wasn't a whole lot different in terms of what he was talking about than Ted Cruz was. He was right. just a little more vulgar than Ted Cruz. But perverted. Even, yeah, <laughs> yeah, perverted, exactly. So I saw Trump, and I still see Trump, as a sort of indicator of a much larger set of issues. Hate crimes against people of color and women and gays and lesbians, anti-Semitism, white nationalism, all these things are on the rise. And that is not because of Trump. Trump is a symptom of a much larger situation. But I think Trump gives us as rhetoricians a sort of toehold to be able to both study and to talk about the ways in which those much larger issues are, are coming to bear. And so I would say for for junior scholars and for graduate students who are thinking about Trump, I would encourage them to think about the ways that Trump is sort of symptomatic and or representative of a whole lot of larger things that are happening in the world that he may allow them a, a chance to sort of get in the door to talk about those things. Um, and they may talk about those things in really localized ways to Trump. By virtue of the fact that I've got a Trump book, I get asked to review a lot of journal articles about Trump. And I've seen some fascinating things. I won't talk about them because they're not published yet. But I've seen some fascinating things that people are doing trying to understand Trump as a phenomenon rather than Trump as one guy who's poisoned the space. Right? He is part of a much uh, larger set of issues and concerns. Um, and so I would say that that's the thing. Interesting. Um, one thing that I try to do when I record these podcast episodes is to remove the temporal aspect and not ask, you know, not let people know that it's a Monday or that it's August or whatever. I will mention that the one of that Charles or David, I'm sorry, David Koch died um, this morning, the morning that Ryan and I were recording. Ryan didn't know that. I know that. David Koch died this morning. And so it one of those big GOP institutional creators, right, is moving on. So I thought I would mention that to you. But there's nothing there since you didn't know about it, I don't think. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I've read a lot about the Kochs. I've thought a lot about the Kochs. I will say that I do not wish for or celebrate people's deaths. Sure. Even people that I really don't like and don't just don't agree with in any way, shape or form. And at the same time, there's a sort of sense of finality, I guess, that, that comes along with hearing things like that. Um, I didn't celebrate when Osama bin Laden died. 
I won't celebrate when whoever the next person to die dies. And yet, nevertheless, it brings a sense of, of conclusion and, and finality that I think is in some ways. I don't even know quite how to describe it. Well, maybe we'll let listeners decide for themselves how they feel about it. Cathartic. That's the word Cathartic. I'm thinking. Of. Yeah. I don't celebrate it, but there is a sort of catharsis to those sorts of moments. I think um, that was a point, something really point. I'm glad that you said it the way that you said that, Ryan. Pleasure. Um, So I've had you on here for about 40 minutes now, and we've talked at length about about 45. Uh, But I don't I do want to mention that you've got a lot of work out there right now. So you've got some forthcoming articles and things in edited collections. And so I do want to mention those, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about those projects. The first one I – oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm I'm listening, just breathing the fir- deeply. Yes, the first one uh, I've noticed is you called Coming to Terms with the Inevitability of Epic Failure or Once More Unto the Breach, which is going to be an explanation points – Publishing in Rhetoric and Composition, that's edited by John Gallagher, who's over at U of I, Illinois, and Danielle DeVos, who's up at MSU, that's mm-hmm. forthcoming later this year from Utah State UP. Could you talk a little bit about your contribution to that text? Yeah, that text is huge. I think there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 chapters in that, uh, and they're all mm-hmm. relatively short, um, but they're sort of different people ruminating on what different parts of the publication process are. And so my chapter is about failure, um, obviously, and based more or less what I argue is that if you're going to have publishing as part of your career, then failure is by definition going to be a major part of your process. The best journals in our field reject somewhere in the neighborhood of nine and a half out of every 10 things submitted to them. The um, least selective journals in our field reject one out of every two, somewhere in the the neighborhood of that. So if you're sending things out, you will be getting rejected. And so coming to terms with the inevitability of epic failure is really a sense of like, how do you take from this process, which guarantees you failure, how do you take from this process things that aren't devastating to you as a human and in fact you can use them to become a better writer and a better scholar and a better teacher and all of those sorts of things i think that that's super important that we're talking about failure and for me i don't think enough people talk about the failures that they have in the classroom and what they learn from those yeah i have a a cv of failures which i have not yet gotten the the um gumption up to actually put out into the world and maybe someday i will but i've charted all the things i've had rejected all the jobs i applied to that didn't call me back all the you name it uh, grants i didn't get all of those things and it's it is humbling in some ways and it's actually really rewarding in other ways because you do a lot of work you know and when you do a lot of work and things don't you don't have a, a article to point to my inclination certainly is to think well i didn't really actually do anything of import or i didn't do anything at all you know i spun my wheels for a long time and what came of it nothing Um, but i'm persuaded 
that I can't remember who it was that explained it this way, but for somebody who is a world-class violin player, much of the time that they spend doing that is by themselves practicing all alone, not for public consumption. And nobody says, well, that was a waste of time. And I think as writers, we often don't realize how much of what we are doing is practicing alone by ourselves, not for public consumption. And so even things that are failing are still in the process of building um, ability. Mm. Well, another uh, another project that you're working on now, you're you're an editor on, uh, is reinventing with theory and rhetoric and writing studies. And I know that you have a chapter in that collection as well called Toward a Working Theory of Institutional Rhetorics. Could you maybe talk about both the chapter and that book that you're helping to edit? Yeah, the book is uh, should be out soon, I think in October. Okay, um, and fact, it's also coming from Utah State UP. Yes. Um, I have the, the index on my desk waiting to be completed. The book itself takes Sharon Crowley's theory of rhetorical invention, um, which is an ancient one. It's a classical theory and combined with postmodernism. And it's very exciting. Uh, But essentially we ask people to do inventive work. So we have chapters about dance. We have chapters about prophetic religious rhetoric. We have chapters about queer desire. We have chapters about queer listening. And really what we said to people was, here's this theory of invention Sort of look out into the world in which you live and work and see if you can apply it to come up with some potential ways of acting in the future. Uh, so it's a really diverse collection of, of things that, that are taking Sharon Crowley's notion of invention and uh, applying it in the world. And it's got lots of people. You know, Deb, Deborah Hahi is a contributor. Diane Davis is a contributor. David Holmes is a contributor. Um, and then we also have graduate students who are writing in it and junior faculty. And um, so we've tried to make it diverse and broad and and uh, welcoming as a book. My chapter is about institutional rhetorics and sort of the long history of rhetoric and institutions existing together and the ways in which institutions validate rhetoric in certain ways um, and calling for the field to do additional work to sort of trace out the functions of institutions in validating and legitimating certain kinds of rhetoric versus other kinds of rhetoric. So that's, that's what that is. Sounds like you're a busy man. Have you already got your uh, plans for Trump book number two in the world? <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, not listed on my CV. I have a book that I'm co-editing with a couple of people, uh, Lydia Wilkes at Idaho State and Nate Cruder, who's now at the University of Georgia, um, about rhetoric and guns. And then I met Lydia at Computers and Writing Conference this year, and she is she is such a nice person. I don't know uh, the other person from the University of Georgia, but Lydia is just a, a treat, a dream. Yeah. She's brilliant. Nate is too. Um, they're actually the intellectual powerhouses behind it. They. Lydia conceptualized it and invited Nate and I to participate in it. Nate's dissertation, so he's been at the University of Western Carolina, I believe, for mm-hmm. um, for several years. 
and now he's just taken a job at the University of Georgia. Uh, but his dissertation was about uh, rhetorics in national security. He used to work in the in the state or the United States government in national security, and so he wrote about that. And so really, it's trying to sort of the collection is trying to come to grips with the ways in which rhetorics about guns and gun violence circulate in the world. And then I've got another book, probably a collection that's just beginning about Hitler's rhetoric. So those are the, so Trump may have to wait <laughs> until after those. Trump 2.0. You're going to be your way back machine, right? <laughs> Go back and figure out the impetus of this disaster. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I, you know, a lot of what the, the Hitler stuff came from, Trish Roberts Miller and I have had this conversation. She's co-editing that the Hitler's Rhetoric book with me. Um, and again, she's the smart one and I'm just the pretty face. But a lot of what we talked about is how much of contemporary arguments about Trump devolve into rhetorics of Hitler, right? Well, he's a Nazi and he's Hitler and all these sorts of things. And so a lot of it is like... Well, where did that come from, this, this argument about Hitler? And how do we get back to uh, understanding that better? It's so complicated. It's super it complicated. You know, I think just listening to you, and and I would be the pretty face on a project like this, too. I don't have a, a strong understanding or, or a lot of knowledge. But, it, you know, you're like, where did it come from? Where did we get Trump and Nazi together? And just for me, who kind of thinks of himself as an everyman in that way, the first word that comes into my mind is Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. I mean, I may be wrong about that. No, I think you're not wrong about it. Although if you take it back, you know, when Obama was president, the Tea Party was constantly calling him Hitler. And when Bush was president, liberals and Democrats were constantly calling him Hitler. So like the, the uh, recourse to Hitlerism is a very common trope. What's, What's fascinating about the Trump presidency is that his actions, and again, I'm not calling him Hitler, I want that to be, to be very clear, but his actions are most readily identifiable with actions that Hitler took as he was coming into power. And yet, when you argue Trump is like Hitler, the immediate reaction of his defenders is, that's not a valid argument because everybody makes that argument. And so we can't compare him to Hitler because it's not allowed. Liz Cheney made that argument when revelations about what was happening on the southern border came out and people are comparing the, the camps on the southern border to concentration camps. Liz Cheney came out and said, well, that's not fair because you can't compare him to Hitler. That's, that's too hyperbolic. And Mitch McConnell said the same thing. And at the same time, you have people who are arguing against Trump's policies saying, well, if this isn't Nazism, if this isn't comparable to Nazism, then what is comparable to Nazism? And if we can't make that argument, how can we ever step in the way of, of actions that might take us down the path towards the Holocaust? Um, and so it's become much more contested in some ways in Trump's moment than it was even with Obama or Bush or people before him, because it was sort of like, oh, that's hyperbolic when we were saying it about Trump and Obama, or about Bush and Obama. But with Trump, it's actually in some ways closer to home. 
and therefore has become much more of a point of con- contestation. Learning more about it just right now from you, it sounds like that that rhetoric and that that tr- rhetorical trope is is uh, cyclical and shared. Yep, absolutely. It works very much for everybody in some ways. Ryan, I want to thank you for joining me, but I want to give you the opportunity to mention anything else you want to mention before I let you get off here. I just want to say thanks. This has been really a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Ryan. Okay, that was my conversation with Dr. Ryan Scannell. want to thank him for coming on the podcast. I appreciate his work. I thought he had a few interesting things to say. I thought that the comment he made about Trump being both the best and the worst thing to happen to his career is something we should chew on for a moment, perhaps. I also agree with his assessment that now is the time for rhetoricians. This is our moment. I don't know if I had necessarily thought about it like that. Kairos, the moment, right? He's absolutely right. Now is our moment. So what are you doing in this moment? What is your work in this moment? And how does it tie into the work that Ryan's doing and what he has to say about rhetoricians right now. I think it's important. I think we need to chew on it, really. If you are interested in my discussion with Ryan and want to learn more about the work he's doing, make sure to check out his book, Faking the News, What Rhetoric Can Teach Us About Donald J. Trump. Check out his website, trumpsrhetoric.com, and follow Ryan on Twitter at Something weird. I'm going to have to spell it for you. Hang on. All right. This is good. R-H-E-T-R-I-C-K-E-R-Y. Dr. Ryan Scannell at Retrickery. Hey, rhetorical listeners. Are you enjoying episodes of the Big Rhetorical Podcast? Make sure to write us a review. Like us. Share us. Retweet us. Get the word out that this podcast is here. And it looks like we're here to stay. You can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts, download episodes, listen, like, and share, and make sure you write a review. Are you interested in being a guest on the Big Rhetorical Podcast? Perhaps you're about to hit the job market or release a new book. Have you got an excellent project that you want to share with all of the other rhetoricians out there? Reach out to us on our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Okay, that's it. Putting it out there. Feel good about it. Going to see what this does out in the world. All right. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.